The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John's Gospel. We're going to be in chapter 6. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book, this collection of books. It's a love letter from you to us, Lord. In it, you reveal your heart for us, your will for us, your plan for us. And Father, tonight, we want to embrace all that you have, Lord. We, we pray for hearts that are open and soft. We pray for wills that are surrendered and submitted and, and ears that are ready to receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Lord, I believe that you have a word that you want to speak specifically to this group of people tonight. And so I pray, Father, that we would respond in faithful obedience to what it is that you say. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 So as we pick up our story here in John chapter 6, it's on the heels of this fantastic miracle that we looked at in depth last weekend, where Jesus takes the lunch of a young boy. He's got two fish and a couple loaves of bread. And Jesus gives thanks for this little meager insufficient meal, and God multiplies it in his hands, and it ends up becoming a feast for 15 or 20,000 people. Now, after that happened, in the immediate aftermath of that, all the crowd is thrilled, and they want to take Jesus, and they want to crown him as their king. But as the end of the story plays out, Jesus slips away and, and hides from the people. Now, why would he do that? Well, because he knew what kind of king they were looking for, and it was a kind of king that he had no interest in being. They weren't interested in serving him or surrendering to him, but rather they wanted him to be king on their terms. They wanted him to meet all of their needs and, hey, provide free lunch and satisfy all of their cravings. And there's a lot of people out there like that today who want Jesus, but they want Jesus on their own terms. Does that make sense? And, and they want Jesus, but they want the Burger King Jesus. They want it their way, right away. And Jesus has no interest in being that kind of king. And so he slips away. And that's where we'll pick up our story in verse 16 of John 6. It says, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. And by now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. And a strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. You don't need to be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So here we have another familiar story about Jesus joining the disciples in the middle of a storm. And we're going to talk for a few minutes about the storms of life. As the disciples are getting into the boat that evening after this incredible miracle, they each have their basket of leftovers. Remember that? 
And Jesus sends them on ahead of him. And, and, and probably the weather is fine. These several of them are fishermen. They're experienced on the water. And so they have no fears. They get into the boat and they begin to, to row at several miles wide the Sea of Galilee is. And, and as darkness fell, you know, this storm comes out of nowhere. Now, this is a common occurrence there in the Sea of Galilee in this particular region. Why? Because of where the Sea of Galilee sits. It sits in a depression some 600 feet below sea level in kind of a cup-like depression surrounded by hills. And this makes it particularly susceptible to sudden and violent storms. It's not uncommon for you to be on the sea and to be glassy, calm conditions one minute. And then out of nowhere, within a matter of minutes, it can become chaotic and stormy. And that seems to be what happened here. But it's a perfect parallel or, or picture for us of, of what often happens in life. I mean, is there any better metaphor for the trials and the travails of life than a storm? And when you think about the, the severity with which the storms of life hit, they strike like that. They hit suddenly and ferociously without warning. One minute, you're just sailing along. And then the next, you're in the middle of a fight for your life. You remember that story that Jesus told in the Sermon on the Mount about the two guys who built their homes on, on different foundations. And so there was the guy who built his house on the sand. And then there was the guy who built his house on the rock. And, and then the storm came, as the story goes. And it says in the aftermath, only the man who built his house on the rock, only his house remained. And the obvious point of that story is, is about the foundations upon which we build our life. We're to build our life on Jesus. He's a rock that is sure and steady and strong and, and can withstand the storms of life. But there's a secondary point in that story that I think we almost tend to forget, and that is this. The storm hit both homes. You know, if the, the guy who built his house on sand is the picture of someone who doesn't care for God or isn't interested in God or doesn't take God into account. And the guy who builds his house on the rock is a picture of the person who honors God and serves God and loves God. Isn't it telling that the storm hit both of their homes? It's just proof that storms are an inevitable part of life. And they come in all various shapes and sizes and forms. There are emotional storms. There are relational storms. Some of you are in the midst of a physical storm. Others of you are facing a financial storm. And, and these storms come to us for different reasons. Sometimes storms hit because of our disobedience. Did you know that? I mean, I think Jonah, the, the wayward prophet, is an example of this. He was running away from God, and God sent a storm to grab his attention. But that's not always the case. Not every storm is a storm of correction. And this story would speak to that. The disciples weren't outside of Jesus' will for their lives. They were just following his instructions. And that, I say that to make this point. You can be in the perfect center of God's will and still find yourself in a perfect storm. So what should you do if you find yourself in one of these storms? And, and there are three takeaways that I see in our text. And the first one is, number one, look for Jesus. Now, this was actually the second time that Jesus dealt with his disciples in the midst of a storm. 
The first occurrence happened some time ago, and and the, the other Gospels tell us about this time, where Jesus was with the disciples in the boat, and, and on that occasion, he was sleeping in the front of the boat, and they woke him up, and he, he stood up, and he rebuked the wind, and he calmed the waves, and, and he made everything calm. Well, this time, he's no longer with them, and, and he's progressing them in their faith. He wants them to know that they can still trust in his unseen presence, that he still cared for them even when they couldn't see him. It's development in their spiritual journey. Now, in Matthew's version of this story, he tells us that Jesus comes to them in the fourth watch of the night. Now, that's sometime between three and six in the morning. And I think it's telling that Jesus waited until then to come to the disciples. <laughs> He didn't come as soon as they started fighting the storm, but he waited until the wee hours of the morning. I I, I don't know. There's something about darkness that just seems to amplify our fears. You know what I'm talking about. It seems like all the bad stuff happens at night, which is probably why they, they have as a setting for all of the horror films, it's always nighttime. That's when our crises seem at their worst. It's when all kids everywhere seem like they're at their worst and sickest, you know. They never get sick during the day. It's always three in the morning, and they come in, and they're like, Dad, I don't feel well. Okay, buddy. It's also when our crises seem at their worst and when despair is at its lowest. And at nighttime, it has a way of exaggerating our fears, too. You know how it is. You see something in the day. Maybe it's a plant. Maybe it's a coat rack. Maybe it's a pile of clothes on the floor. But at night, in the, when the shadows are long, that coat rack suddenly transforms into some sinister monster that wants to kill you. <laughs> and I think something similar happens to us in our hearts when we're facing emotional crises. We think, this storm is never going to end. And our fight feels futile. Something else we're susceptible to thinking in the midst of our storms is that God has abandoned us. But we must remember that that is never the case. And this story drives home that truth. See, in in Mark's version of the story, and I'm borrowing from the other Gospels because it, it helps fill in the picture for us. So you have four Gospels, four accounts, and oftentimes they, they tell the same story, but from different angles. And when Mark tells this story, he talks about how Jesus was up on the mountain, and he was praying for the disciples, and he was watching them. He could see them as they rode across the lake. I love that point, because it reminds us that even when we can't see him, he still sees us. And his eyes are on us the whole time. Listen to Isaiah 43, too. I think I forgot to put this in your notes, but I just want to read it to you because it's a beautiful verse. The prophet says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Someone say, praise the Lord. He doesn't promise us a life free from problems. I don't know if you caught that in the verses we just read from Isaiah. He doesn't say you'll never pass through the fire. He doesn't say you'll never go through the waters. He says, I will be with you. So the Lord doesn't say you're going to experience a life free from problems if you give your heart and your life to me. What he says is, I'll give you my abiding presence, and I'll walk with you through the midst of those things. The point for us this evening is this. God wants to meet us in our storms. He hasn't abandoned you. 
He hasn't forsaken you. Your fight, your rowing all through the night, it's not futile. He is moving towards you even right now. It could be that God wants to meet you in this church service tonight. Another thought, something else this story reminds us of, is that God often shows up in unexpected ways and at unexpected times. I'm sure the last thing that any of these guys expected was for Jesus to come walking to them on the water. And of all Jesus' miracles, this one scores massive cool points. Don't you agree? But that's why you've got to keep looking for him, right? Because our vision becomes blurred and obscured. And so we've got to keep our heads up. We've got to keep our eyes up because in the midst of our storm, Jesus is going to come. But we might not recognize him if we're not looking for him. So you've got to keep looking for Jesus. The second thing is listen to Jesus. Jesus is walking by. Mark tells us that he would have kept going. <laughs> but they're like, wait, <laughs> he's just out for a stroll. I love the, the fact that the things that were overwhelming them and terrifying them, that, that Jesus was just over and above it all. And so Jesus says to them, it is I. You don't need to be afraid. And this immediately dissipated their fears. What? When they heard his voice. There's something about the voice of Jesus in the midst of the storm that brings peace to the heart. And if you're in a storm, you need to pay close attention because there's a very good chance that God is trying to speak to you. In fact, he might be using the storm as a means of getting your attention so that you can hear his voice. You remember the story of Job and all that he suffered and all that he went through. All the pain and the trials and the travails, and he just lost everything. And so a lot of the first half of that book is, is all of these counselors coming to him and telling him why he's suffering. And then it pivots and it transitions to Job, and he's questioning God, and he's saying, God, why have you allowed this, and why have you allowed that, and why have you, uh, why, where are you, God? And then in Job 38, God finally shows up. And this is what it says. This is Job 38.1. Let's read this together out loud. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Where did God speak to Job? Through the storm. And I, I just want to point out that even when God spoke to Job, he didn't answer his questions. <laughs> Job had a laundry list of questions. And we usually do for God when we're in the midst of it and we're suffering and we're grieving and we're hurting and we're suffering and we wonder why God. And God didn't answer Job's questions. What he did and what he spoke of was his power and he revealed his presence. And if you read the whole book, what you'll find is that in the end, it was enough. You see, what we think we want is answers. God, why did you allow this to happen? And don't you know, I wrestled with questions just like Job did. As this has been a difficult season for me and my family. And God, why did you allow this? And why didn't you do that? And why didn't you step in here? And God hasn't answered my questions. There's still a laundry list of things I'm waiting for answers on. But you know what God has done? He's shown up. And I can tell you with integrity of heart that this season, although it's been the most difficult of my life, it's been a season where I've heard the Lord's voice and I've walked in his presence and it's, it's been enough. And God will speak to you in your storms. He might not give you the answers that you're looking for, but he will bring his presence and you too will find that it's enough and he'll bring you through it. Last thought on this and then we'll move forward. 
But we're to look for Jesus in our storms. Keep your head up. We're to listen for Jesus because he's speaking. He says, I'm here. I'm with you. I haven't abandoned you. And then the third thing, let Jesus into your boat. It says in verse 21 that they were willing to take him into the boat. And then immediately the boat reached the shore where they were. As soon as they brought Jesus into the boat, immediately they were at their destination. One minute they're in a storm, I'm sure they thought would never end. But the second Jesus gets in the boat, everything changes. Listen, do you want to get through your storm? Keep looking for Jesus. Listen for his familiar voice and then invite him into your boat and things will change. Now, the circumstances may or may not change. Sometimes God just picks us up and delivers us from the storm. Amen for those times. Praise the Lord for those examples. But other times he leads us through the storm. He walks with us through the fire. But in all things, your heart can experience peace. Why? Because peace doesn't come from removing the problems, but peace comes from inviting the Prince of Peace into the situation. I love Isaiah 26.3. It's a verse I quote all the time. And it says this. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. You take your mind, this battle zone, this war zone, where all of these competing thoughts, these what if fears are floating around, and you fix your mind on Jesus. And when you do that, he'll bring peace to your heart. He'll see you through your storm. Well, moving on in verse 22, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there. And that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they'd gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me because you saw, not because you, I'm sorry. You're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So there was this massive crowd, remember? This is the aftermath of that miracle, 20,000 people. And they all see the disciples get into the boat and cross over, but they couldn't find Jesus, remember? And so they're on the hunt. They're seeking Jesus out. And eventually, they make their way to where the disciples are. And there's Jesus with them. And they want to know, hey, how did you get over here? And notably, Jesus just ignores their question. I mean, if he gave them the answer, it would have sounded something like this. Well, I walked over here on the waves. And then in the midst of the storm, I climbed into the boat with the disciples. And as soon as I did that, we were immediately at the shore. So that's how I got here. But he doesn't even go down that road. Instead, he just exposes their motivation for seeking him out. They liked being around him. Why? Because they wanted him to feed them again. You see, these people were poor. They would have been living hand to mouth. And so having someone like Jesus around who could provide a free meal, Hey, that was a pretty handy guy to have on, on uh, tap. And so they were being driven by their hunger. 
They were in the right place. They were seeking the right person, but they were doing it with the wrong heart. They failed to see that it was their souls that were hungry. And that's what Jesus wanted to address. But before we move on to that, let's just admit that we're not unlike them, are we? We all are driven by these appetites, these hungers. There's a hunger within every person for a missing something, a something that nothing on this earth can satisfy. In his book, Our Daily Walk, F.B. Meyer wrote about this experience. And he said it like this, and I quote, God has set eternity in our heart. And man's infinite capacity cannot be filled or satisfied with the things of time and sense. How often, though, do we try to do that very thing? And we try to fill the, the infinite void, the chasm of emptiness with things. And the whole advertising and marketing industry is based on the premise that human beings long to fill a chasm that can't be filled with stuff. And so it's, buy this, go here, do that. Eat this, stay here, and if you do that, you'll be happy, and we just keep chasing the carrot at the end of the stick without ever being able to reach it. The prophet Isaiah again spoke to this in Isaiah 55 too. Let's read this verse out loud together. He said, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. You see, there was another message in the miracle. And Jesus wanted to use the, mess, the miracle as a signpost to point to the only thing that can truly satisfy the human heart. The conversation goes on in verse 28. They asked him, what, do we, what must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. All right, so they're having this conversation. Don't forget the context. Jesus says, you were working for food that spoils. And they said, OK, well, what do we need to do to work the works that God requires? If you were to read between the lines, they're saying, what do we need to do to earn God's favor, to, to curry his favor in our lives? And this is always the question that religion asks. You see, religion works from the outside in. It starts with the premise that there are things that we need to do so that God will accept us, that God will be pleased with us. Religion says, here's the list. Go out and fill it. But Jesus is saying that's the wrong question. If you want to talk about works, there's really only one work. And it's not really even a work. He says, this is the work of God, that you would believe on me. Your religion says, go out and do. Christianity turns that on its head and says, it's not about what you can do, but it's about what God has already done for you. Rather than working from the outside in and laying out what we need to do for God, relationship starts from the inside out and says, the only way you can ever please God is by being declared righteous in his eyes based on the free gift that you get from Jesus because of the finished work of the cross. So that's why Jesus says you got to believe in him. And again, this is a major theme in the Gospel of John. It's faith. We can't earn our salvation. I hope you know that. And maybe you know it here, but do you really know it down here in your heart? Or are you still trying to earn God's favor? And you think that God's happy with you this week because maybe you had a good week, and maybe you read your Bible a few times, and 
hey, at the end of the day, here you are in church on a Saturday evening. We so desperately want to earn our forgiveness. But the only way you're ever going to get to heaven isn't based on what you can do. It's based on what he's done. Right? What did Jesus cry from the cross? It is finished. There's nothing left for you to do except to believe. So this is the work of God, that you believe on the one he has sent. So they asked him, well, then what sign will you give us that we might see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors, they ate manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread in in from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Can you tell where their mind is focused on? <laughs> bread. They're referring to Moses because they're essentially trying to marginalize the miracle that Jesus did. They're like, yeah, that thing you did yesterday, you gave us a meal, but we're hungry again. And Moses, yeah, he fed us for 40 years. So if you could pull off a stunt like that, we'd be talking, you know. They already had Moses' cookbook out, 101 ways to cook manna. Manna pancakes, manna malt, banana splits, and of course our favorite, manna cotti, right? And so there's all these recipes. And again, they're seeking Jesus, but not for the right reasons. That's why they asked for a sign. Of course, he'd already given them the sign. And so they're seeking food, but Jesus knows that what they really need is life. Because while food can sustain you temporarily, only Jesus can give eternal life. It isn't something they were interested in, though. So in the end, what we know is that most of them turned their backs on Jesus and abandoned him. In verse 35, we go on. It says, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me, and still you do not believe. Okay, go back to verse 35. This is one of those huge statements that Jesus makes there. When he says, I am the bread of life, it's one of seven I am statements that Jesus makes. The others are, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And in all seven, he combines two things. He combines the very name of God with some metaphor or picture of what he wants to do for his people, some declaration about himself. We remember that it was in Exodus 3 that God revealed himself to Moses by this name, I am. Moses is having this dialogue with God. And at one point, he says, who should I say sent me? And God responds by saying, I am. Tell them I am has sent you, which as far as names goes, it's a pretty peculiar name. Seems like an incomplete thought or sentence. I am what, we may wonder. 
And yet it's left to the rest of the Bible to unfold who the great I am is. And the inference there is that God will become to his people in the moment whatever it is that they need. So whatever the situation calls for, that's what God is becoming to us. And Jesus steps onto the scene, and he completes the sentence for all of God's people when he says, I am the bread of life. Now, bread is an essential staple of food, right? So he's saying, I am what you need to carry on basic life. We'll talk about putting bread on the table. We'll talk about breaking bread together. And Jesus is telling us that he is as essential for our spiritual lives as bread is for our physical lives. And so we, we take Jesus in, and we allow him to feed our souls, even as we use physical bread to nourish our physical bodies. Jesus, I, I, I want to be that for you. I want to carry you through this life. And some of us are starving because we're not feasting on the bread of life. His name is Jesus. In verse 37, he says, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So here Jesus dives into this this work of salvation. The mystery of salvation is how we've described it. And they're interesting, these verses are, because in them Jesus looks at salvation from two perspectives. He looks at this this thing called salvation from from God's perspective, and then he flips the camera around, and he looks at how it works from man's perspective. From heaven's vantage point, he says God chooses us. But from earth's vantage point, we choose him. Now, these two truths, they seem to be contradictory to one another. Does God choose us, or do we choose him. How does that play out? How does that work? And they seem incompatible, but they really aren't. They're rather held in tension. If you think about a bridge, like if you've ever driven over the Golden Gate Bridge, the only reason that bridge is able to suspend in midair is because it's held in tension. And there are many truths like that, and this is certainly one of them. And and so I just want to look with you at both of these truths. Number one, Jesus says to me in verse 36 that not all who see him will come to him. He said, you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. Think about all that these people had witnessed. I mean, Jesus was there in their midst, performing miracles, feeding their stomachs, but they never came to believe or trust in him. And and so too, oftentimes people get near and around the things of God. They might even come to church, but it's been said that coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. Just because you're here, it's good that you're here, and we're glad that you're here. But this doesn't make you a Christian. There are many who see him, yet still do not believe. A second thought. All who are chosen come. Jesus points out this truth in verse 37, the first half. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. 
And so that raises an immediate question in most of our minds. We say, well, am I chosen? If, if only the people who are chosen come to him, then how do I know if I'm chosen? And to answer this, I would like to refer to the words of Dr. Harry Ironside. He explained the difficulty in this way. He goes, and I quote, here's a little secret. If you come to Jesus, you'll find out that God has chosen you. If you do not come, God knows that also. So the ball is in your court. <laughs> and I like that kind of simplistic thinking. There are theologians that just wrap themselves around the axle trying to wrestle through all the ins and outs of this. But I think that Deuteronomy 29, 29 comes to mind, which says the secret things belong to the Lord. And, and so if you choose to follow Jesus tonight, you give him your heart, you give him your life, what you'll find is that God has already chosen you. He knew you were going to come to him. But it's still free for whoever, come, whoever would come, because that's what verse 37, the second half, goes on to say. All who come are welcomed. In the second half of verse 37, look at it again with me. Whoever comes to me, I'm not going to drive away. So only those whom the Father chooses come, but whoever wants to come, I'm not going to turn you away. Now, how does that work? Well, this is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what kind of a life you have lived. If you will give your heart to Jesus, he will come in. He will renew you from the inside out. You can't be too old. You can't be too good. You can't be too bad. Jesus will take you just as you are. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then finally, we see this truth in verse 39. It says, all who come to him are saved forever. Oh, I love that. Look at the end of verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me. But I'll raise them up at the last day. This is the hope of the believer, that if you give your life to Jesus, he puts you in his hands, and nothing can take you out. I like to think of it like this. Since you didn't do anything to earn your salvation in the first place, <clears throat> you can't do anything to lose it either. God never loses people. He's not like me. He's not like us. I don't know about you, but I lose things all the time. I'm losing my keys. I'm constantly losing my sunglasses. I'm constantly losing my stuff. My Oh, it's just terrible, you know? And I, I try to have places where I put my things, and I'm just like constantly losing things. I think I'd lose my head if it wasn't screwed onto my body. Anybody else? But God's not like us. He's not sitting up in heaven going, oh my goodness, I've done it again. Where did I put Daniel? I know he was around here somewhere. Where did you go, you little rascal, you know? That's just not how it works. He knows right where you are, and you're safe in his hand, and nothing can pluck you out of his hand. Somebody say amen to that. And let's close with verses 41 through 47. It says, at this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I, come, or, I came down from heaven? <laughs> And Jesus said, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. 
and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. This is the final thought, that God is drawing you. You are being drawn by the Father. I love that verse, verse 44, no one can come unless the Father draws them. And the crowd was grumbling because they knew Jesus. They thought they knew where he was from, of course. They should have looked into things a little bit further. They would have seen that Joseph was just a stepdad and that his real father was his father in heaven. But in response to that, Jesus points to the fact that, hey, look, I understand what's going on here. And, and it's got to be the Father who draws you. And don't you know that God is drawing each and every one of you into his heart, into his arms. It's why you're here on this planet. God put you on this planet so that you could walk in a loving relationship with him. He wants to woo you. He wants to win you. I love the way Jeremiah 31.3 puts it. Let's read this together out loud. It's in your notes. It says, with loving kindness have I drawn you. Every good thing in your life is a shadow, it's a gift, it's, it's a finger pointing to heaven to the, the giver of all good gifts. And God's saying, I love you, I sent my son Jesus to die on the cross in your place. If you'll just turn from your sin, if you'll give your heart to me, I'll come into your life and I'll renew you and make you new and I'll transform you from the inside out. He's drawing you with cords of love. He speaks of something else he loves to draw us with. He, he speaks from the prophets. He quotes from Isaiah 54, 13 to prove his point. He talks about how they will all be taught by God. And something that God uses to draw us to himself is the word, the word of God. So as we open the word, as we read this love letter from God's heart to our heart, a light dawns in our hearts, and we start to see the love of God for us, that this isn't just some history book filled with stuffy old stories about people who lived generations ago, but it's, 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 it's a love letter for you specifically and personally. And oftentimes, as the word of God gets shared, I get to see this as a pastor so many times. It's glorious where I just see it. I'll look out, and I'll see someone, and I'll lock eyes with them, and it's just like the light is dawning, and they realize, oh my gosh, they're coming under the conviction of God's love for them. And it's just like the Holy Spirit is wrapping his arms around them and drawing them to himself so that he can win their heart. And maybe God's doing that with you tonight, and why would you resist that? If he's drawing you, you still have to respond. If he's drawing you, you can stiff arm him. You can hold him at arm's length. And you can resist the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And let me just encourage you, if the Lord's voice is, is still fresh, if you hear it tonight, don't harden your hearts because there's a danger in that. The, the, the danger is that you can get to a place where you are calloused to the voice of God, where you are numb to his cords of love that he's using to draw you to himself. And if that's where you're at, I pray for you that God would, would refresh you and rekindle and revive your heart of stone. But for those of you who are still open and your ears are open and your heart is soft, oh, if he's drawing, just run. 
You run to Jesus, and as verse 47 says, whoever believes in him, he will give eternal life. And the word for life there, it's a, it's a Greek word, zoe. And it speaks not just of a quantity of time, but it speaks of a quality, an experience of life that God designed you to walk in and to know. Zoe speaks of life real and genuine, life active and vigorous, life devoted to God, life blessed both here and now and in the life to come. And this is what God wants for all of us. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray. Thank you, Lord, for this word. And it's so refreshing. It's so rich. It's so deep. It's, it's so sweet. We can't even begin to plumb the depths of your love for us. And Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would minister to your people right where they're at, Jesus. I thank you for your ability to meet us right where we're at. And you reach down from heaven, and you put your finger right on the, the part, the point in our lives that you're wanting to address. And I believe you're doing that right now with people who have been trying to satisfy the hunger, the thirst, the craving, the yearning in their heart, and they're trying to stuff that void with the things of this world, the bigger and the best and the fastest and the newest and, and all the rest. And, and they know it as, as well as you that it hasn't been working. You've been chasing your tail in futility and in frustration, and God is saying, will you give me a chance? Will you invite me in? You were designed to know me, God would say to you. You were designed to walk in relationship with me. And in, until you connect to me, run to me, surrender to me, you're going to continue to experience that gnawing sense of frustration. Let me just encourage you. Yield. Surrender and run into the everlasting arms of your, your heavenly daddy and let him pick you up and let him embrace you and let him renew you and wash you and restore you and rekindle within you a love that you've never experienced in this world because it's a supernatural love. It's a divine love. It's, it's a love, an agape that comes from the heart of God, and it fills you to overflowing, and it spills out from you onto every person that you come into contact with. This, this is the love that God wants you to know and walk in and experience. And if that's the desire of your heart, if you want to know that love, let me just invite you to say this prayer with me, and we can just say it out loud right now. Say, dear Jesus, fill me with your love. I'm tired of running in circles. So I choose to run into your arms. Fill me and fulfill me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.